0: church, you must be doing something right. Because boy, the devil has certainly woken up lately and his attacks on us. I have to tell you, I was really disheartened this last week. I don't know if you saw this. We sent some emails out. There is some, I don't know what we call them, hammer I don't know what bad name to call them in church, but there's a hacker out there that was posing as your minister asking people to send the backs of Apple gift cards to him so he could help a woman with cancer. Now, I don't know if this is someone in Nigeria or North Korea. I have no clue where they're from. But they tried to hack our church in that way. And so we had to send out these messages don't send gift cards. Let me say that emphatically don't send anyone a gift card. It's just a bad idea as far as the codes go. But it annoyed me like someone tried to profit off of the integrity of the church and the generosity of God's people. And I thought, hmm. Just exactly the timing, right? We go and we engage in 24 hours of intensive prayer. We pray for impossible things, and what do you know? The old devil shows up in a big way, trying to harm the good things that we're doing. It's just how it is. We must be doing something right. That's what I'll say. It's been an interesting, an interesting week since we had that event where we were praying intently for the church, and uh, there's some more things about that that I want to share with you as the day goes on. But I just want you to know, God is on the move that's important to this story because sometimes God moves around us and we don't see him moving he's the unseen God he moves in unseen ways but he's still moving and sometimes we have the privilege of seeing what he's doing and that encourages us it frightens us it's a powerful thing to see God and we don't always know how to handle or what to do with things that God does in fact it's been that way for a long time there were these really religious people. They were the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. And they were very faithful to the Old Testament law, and they were struggling to put it put together who is Jesus? What's he about? And in fact, they frequently got it wrong. And on one occasion, well, as we'll see today, they got it really really wrong. So if you have your Bibles, you might turn to the first story, Matthew chapter 12, And I want to read this story, starting in verse 22. This is a story of Jesus. It said, They brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished. They said, Could this be the Son of David? Could this be the promised one, the Messiah? But those teachers of the law, those Pharisees, When they heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Wow. I mean, I don't know where this falls, but right, when you kind of give credit to the devil for something that God is doing, that's a pretty big no-no, right? That's a big one. That's a really big one. Like, don't give the devil credit for stuff that God does. And that's what they're doing. Like, they're very misguided. They can't figure Jesus out. And so they assume, well, this must be from the devil. It can't be from God because we can't figure it out, which in in essence, they were playing the part of God themselves, like we know best what's going on. So they say this about Jesus to the people, but Jesus knows their hearts and their thoughts. And so he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, every city or household divided against itself, will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Remember that line real carefully. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit, you know, like giving credit to the devil for something God does, will not be forgiven. Verse 33. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers... How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out from the good stored up in him. An evil man brings evil things out from the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. Now, he's just healed someone who was blind and who was mute, and and he's taken care of that. It's worked a miracle. It was an incredible thing. But as soon as that happens, the Pharisees come along, and they have accused him of, of this terrible thing, that it wasn't by God's power. And so having just seen what happened, they immediately say to him after he chastises them, they said, well, show us a sign that you're who you say you are. Like, what you've done is not enough. Show us something else. And it kind of really gets under Jesus' skin. And he says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. None but the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. We're going to do a series together for the next three weeks called The Story Behind the Story. We've just heard the front story where Jesus is talking to them about, about faith and about miracles and about what God does and what, what they need to understand. And he tells them, I'm going to give you a sign. It's going to be a lot like the sign of Jonah. Now, we've always kind of just said, I think the, the easy understanding of that is, okay, Jonah was in a fish for three days, Jesus was in the grave for three days. That's, that's the whole of the story. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. In fact, I think there's some things in Jonah we can learn that are pretty important to what Jesus was trying to say to them and to us. So today, we're gonna take a deep dive for the next, well, not that deep, but a deeper dive for the next few minutes, and we're gonna take a look at the story of Jonah. I know it's a children's story, it's only 48 verses long. It's not a long story. There's a, it's a very unique verse, that I want you to hear something about the book of Jonah. Uh, Pastor Scott Mays points out this fact that Jonah is only named in this book 17 times, but God is named 38. In fact, uh, he is named so much that you could accurately say that Jonah is actually a background character in the story. And the book of Jonah is really all about who God is, what God thinks, what God wants, what God does. So it's much less the story of Jonah... And much more, the story of God. It's interesting, the very name Jonah is a, is a word that just simply meant dove. Like a dove that descended on Jesus at his baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It gives us the idea that his name was meant to be, he was supposed to be a blessing. He was meant to be a blessing. But, well, as you know and as you'll see, Jonah's going to struggle with that. It is a book that does another thing. It does reveal a lot about Jonah. Uh, He probably was much less like a dove and much more like a, I don't know, what's an obnoxious bird, a vulture. He had, wanted to wait to see the things die so that he could devour them. It's kind of an interesting guy. The book reveals a lot more about the messenger, about how he was as a person, than what he actually said perspective of time. He lived about 3,000 years ago, and this we might not realize he was a teenager during the time of Elijah and Elisha. It's very possible that Jonah, as a boy, was on Mount Carmel when Elijah called down fire from heaven to burn up the altar. He lived at a pretty amazing time where they saw God do amazing things. That's when he lived he also lived at a time of crisis. Now, we know from history that 40 years after the time of Jonah, the Assyrians will take over Israel and destroy it. Israel doesn't know it yet. The northern kingdom, those tribes are in their last days. They have four decades left before they will be utterly destroyed as a people. That's the time when Jonah lives. It's in the last days of the northern kingdom of Israel, It was the, the last four decades of their existence, but they don't know that yet. They do know, however, that the Assyrians are trouble, and long before the Assyrians will destroy the Israelites, they're already making their life really hard. They're making their life really difficult. They're taxing them in, 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 in huge ways, not only taking their money, but they also take their children and make them slaves. There's a number of things they do to oppress them, and they hate them. The Israelites hate the Assyrians. You might ask the question, why does Assyria ultimately invade? Because they get so fed up, the Israelites get so fed up, they send a message to the Assyrian king: say, we're not going to pay you any more money. The Syrian king says, fine, <laughs> I'm going to destroy you and wipe you from the earth, and he does. Now, there's a reason God lets that happen, <clears throat> and that is because the Israelites have, have stopped worshiping God, and they've started worshiping idols, and they refuse to give glory to God. They instead worship the Baals and Moloch and, and all of the other uh, false gods of that day. So that's why God will allow them to be destroyed, because they're no longer faithful to God. But that's more of the story than you need to know. You just need to know there was a lot of hatred between the Israelites and Assyria. And even though Jonah is a prophet of God, he hates, hates the Assyrians. The capital of Assyria at this time is in Nineveh. It's a very wicked, very wicked city. Very cruel city. There are some things that are inscribed on cylinders that have been found about the wickedness of Nineveh and how that they did horrible things to their enemies. I'm not going to describe them, but they're, they're on a scale that's not unlike the scale of what Hitler did in World War II. This was a wicked place. They were brutal and oppressive and cruel and horrible in the things that they did. So the book of Jonah opens with these words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, that's another phrase that's important when it says the word of the Lord came. It happens 227 times in the Bible, but nowhere else does a book start with those words. It's another insight that this is a story that is from God, about God, that's going to teach us some important things. God tells him, Jonah, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Because its wickedness has come up before me. There's a huge question that we all have to wrestle with right here. It's something we can infer from the story. God was sending Jonah to Nineveh, a place he didn't want to go, to people he didn't like. God was sending him there. But the harder question for us as we try to understand how does the Bible apply to us is the question of where might God be sending me? Where might God be sending you? Who is it that God wants for you to reach? Who is it that God wants for you to teach? Who is it that God's calling on you to help save from destruction? Jonah was sent to Nineveh, and as he gets this message from God in verse 3, this incredible moment, it says, but... Like we expected to say, right, this is the Bible, we expected to say, and Jonah obeyed the Lord. (laughs) But that's not what happens. And we can relate because sometimes we know what God wants us to do, but we just choose not to do it. That was Jonah. He ran from the Lord. Listen, Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. That is, he headed the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. He went the exact opposite direction as far away as he could go. In fact, it says that he headed for Tarshish, he went down to Joppa. By the way, that phrase, he went down, that's gonna show up real quick in three different levels in the story, and just keep track of that. It marks the idea of Jonah descending. And every time he runs from God, things get worse and worse and worse for him. And I'm not trying to be a prophet, I'm not trying to rain on your parade, but everyone needs to hear that message, that when you run from God, and you're not doing what God wants you to do in your life, don't be surprised when things get worse and worse and worse. That's what happens to Jonah. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. (laughs) Paying the fare. He has no idea how heavy the fare is going to be on him that he's about to pay. He thinks that by buying a ticket to get on a boat, that that's all that it's going to cost him. But running from God will cost you a lot more than that. It's not going to cost him just a ticket to get on a boat. It's going to cost him in a lot of ways. He's not running from God. He's running from his responsibility. He's running from God and running from God's mission that God has for us. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each one cried out to his own God. They threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Here it goes again. But Jonah had gone below. He'd gone deeper. Where he lay down, and he fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us. Who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry ground. This terrified them. And They asked, well, what have you done? And this next verse just blows my mind. They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Presumably, they ask, what are you doing on this boat? And he said, well, I'm running from God. Now, that's probably not how you would answer things. Like, you walk into a bar, someone says, what are you doing at this bar? Well, I'm running from God today. I mean, it's, it's not what we would likely say, but that seems to be what Jonah said. Like, he, it was the lead story. Like, hey, I'm Jonah. I'm running from God. <laughs> Good luck with that, right? I mean, what are you going to say to that? They knew that he was a, run, he was a runaway. He was running from God. And it's kind of laughable, except I've met a lot of people in my life, and you have too. That Even though they didn't say the words, it was obvious that's what they were doing. They were afraid to have that moment with God. We all are sometimes, just like a little kid who does the wrong thing and doesn't want their parents to know. The difference is God already knows. Your parents usually already know. So he was running. He told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Well, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it'll become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. He's beginning to have realization that disobedience is going to cost him something. In this case, he's saying, Throw me into the raging sea. He's not expecting to live. But instead, the men did their best to row back to land. They didn't want to throw him off the ship, but they could not. The sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard And as soon as they do, the raging sea grows calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord. They made vows to him. Now, what I'm about to tell you is interesting because even in his disobedience, Jonah was an effective prophet for God. He realized this. When it says they said, call on your God... They all were acknowledging, we all have our own gods. None of us worship your God. We all worship our own gods. They all had done that. But when this thing happened and they throw Jonah into the sea, they suddenly say, whoa, none of our gods ever did anything like that. Jonah's God must be the right God. He must be the real God. He must be the only true God. And so those sailors, salty as they were, they start worshiping God on their boat. Like, They're amazed at who God is when they see what he's doing. When I say Jonah is an effective evangelist for God, he is, even though he doesn't want to be. And I know that in this room, some of you are reluctant prophets. You're not anxious to go talk to people about your faith, but that doesn't mean God's not using you already. He very well may be. In fact, sometimes it's not what we say, but it's our example that is the best witness that we can have. Now, Jonah was no great witness, but he was honest about who God was, and because he was honest about who God was, the people feared God, and they worshiped him as God, and the sailors come to faith, right there on the boat. Now, I wonder what it was like. They've just thrown Jonah into the water, and as they see him out there in the water, he hasn't drowned yet. He's swimming around because the sea gets calm instantly. And they're like, whoa, Jonah, your God's great. He's powerful. There's Jonah. Jonah. And they're probably thinking, we should probably throw that guy a life jacket now and see what happens next. But before they can do that, they're looking out into the sea and, well, you know what happens next. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. So they throw him the sea. The sea gets calm and all of a sudden, Gulp. <laughs> Are they? No wonder they start worshiping God, right? They're like, whoa, do what God says. You know, he'll devour you with the fish. And Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and for three nights. Chapter 2 says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord God. You think? (laughs) You think Jonah prayed? I'm inside of a fish and I'm still alive. You think I'm going to pray? Absolutely. Like, what else are you going to do in there? Like, oh, this is kind of neat. I want to look around. I don't think that's what you're going to do. He's like, oh, God, this is bad. Save me, help me, right? I'm sorry, I'll go to Africa. I'll go wherever you want me to go. Get me out of this fish. He's terrified, and he prayed. We get to read his prayer. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me from deep in the realm of the dead. All hope seems lost. He hits rock bottom. He's powerless. He will now go wherever that fish wants to go. To get his attention, I have a sense that God let that fish take him all over the highs and the lows of the of the of the sea. I called for help, but Jonah says, "God, you listened to my cry." You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea. The currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. And in this moment of realization of what it means to be a child of God, even when in rebellion, yet I will look again towards your holy temple, The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me forever. But you, Lord, my God. That's an important moment. The sailors had their own gods, and Jonah had his God. And faced with an impossible situation, Jonah knows there's only one God that can help him and save him, but he's fortunate to know the God he worships is the only one that can save him, the only true God. So he says, My God, but you, Lord, my God, brought my life from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I will, with shouts of grateful praise, sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I'll make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord then commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land, interestingly enough. In Nineveh, God took him to the place he didn't want to go. He does that sometimes. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, and God said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. You think? You think you obey after all that? You got it, God. Nineveh, I'm there. For three days, he says, Nineveh was a large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Interesting that it's 40 more years and Israel will be overthrown. He says, You're on the clock. In 40 days, this land, this nation, This great city, the capital of the Assyrians, it's going to be wiped out. you got 40 days. The Ninevites, however, believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off the royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything, he declared a fast, do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we'll not perish. And we often say that God is unchanging and there's a truth to that. But there is also a reality that sometimes God is motivated by repentance and destruction that he's called for. He will relent because of repentance, because of a person who says, I'm wrong, I've sinned against you. And the heart of God is not a God, not a God that loves destruction. He loves to see people return to him. He doesn't want destruction. He wants restoration. And that's what happens. The people turn to God in this wicked, horrible place, faced with their destruction. They say, oh, we need to get right with God. And they do. It says in verse 10, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. He did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Let's go back to our story about Jesus for a minute. You had these people, these Pharisees, that had it all wrong. Could it be that, like the people of Nineveh, who had it all wrong, that they needed to see God for who he was and change, so that God would relent, turn back his anger at them? Those Pharisees needed to change, they were slow to do that. God's going to give you the sign of Jonah, a warning. You need to stop what you're doing and change. That's the message of Jonah. The last part of the story is perhaps the most interesting, even though the fish is exciting. What's crazy is that after everything God's done for Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1 says, But Jonah, but to Jonah, God, turning away from his vow to destroy them, seemed very wrong. Jonah became angry. He is a complex dude. Like, all the things God did to his attention, he did the thing God wanted to do. He was effective. Think about this. Like, he's an evangelist that goes into the biggest city that there is there, and he like has a revival in the whole city. The king of all the people of Syria, they all repent and come before God. Like, that is effective evangelism. Talk about doing a great job. He had done it. He had done what God wanted. God did this incredible thing, and it says, but Jonah was angry. It seemed very wrong. And he said to God, isn't this exactly why I said, Lord, when I was still at home, that this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? He says this in a way that he's angry towards God. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You are slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. And after he sees that God has been gracious to all the wicked people, Jonah, who thinks of himself as being better than everyone else, says, well, if this is how you are, God, then just take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. Jesus had challenged those Pharisees because they would rather believe a lie than the truth. They would rather believe that he was acting on the power of Satan than the power of God. They couldn't accept who he was. But he was telling them, a time's going to come where you're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to decide who I am. It's going to be important. The sign of Jonah... And Jonah refused to believe. He believed in God, but he refused to believe that God's plan for the Assyrians was the right plan. Like the Pharisees had refused to believe that Jesus was the right plan that God wanted to work. So he was upset. That's why I tried to go to Tarshish. I knew you abounded in love. Take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord said to him, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out. He sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade. He waited to see what would happen to the city, presumably for 40 days. He's still hoping God will wipe him out. That would make his day to see all those people perish. Tragic, isn't it? Now the Lord saw Jonah, and he provided a leafy plant. He made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was happy, very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And again, he wanted to die, and he said, it would just be better for me to die than to live. Jonah had liked that plant. He cared a lot about it, and when it was gone, he was like, this is terrible, my special little plant that gave me shade. It's all gone. Woe is me. Life is terrible. This is before air conditioning, right? So it's like the AC went out for Jonah. And he, can't, he wants to despair of life. He can't go on anymore. And then God gives this God picture of how God sees things. Jonah said, it is right for me to be angry, and I am so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, Jonah, you've been concerned about this plant, but you didn't tend to it. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? In which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. It's an interesting phrase. 120,000 that don't know right from their left doesn't mean they're a bunch of simple people. There's their children. God says, "Should I wipe out the city?" What about the 120,000 children who haven't done anything wrong? He also said that part that's just weird there. He said, and also there are many animals. I don't know, this is really hard for me to imagine that God might hold off his destruction between of our cats and dogs, our cows and our horses. But God says, there's a lot of animals there. I'm not in the business. I just want to kill off all the animals either. The babies and the animals are still worth something to me. I don't want to see them suffer and die. But you want to see them all die, Jonah. You don't have in mind the things that I have in mind. See, Jonah wanted God to be hard. He couldn't accept that God could be compassionate, gracious, and soft. The Pharisees couldn't accept Jesus. He was too soft. He hung out with sinners and he hung out with the sick and the people who weren't perfect. And they couldn't accept that. They didn't want that Jesus, they didn't want that Messiah. They wanted one who was hard, just like Jonah wanted God to be hard. They wanted one that was mean and hateful. That's just not the God that shows up in the story of Jonah. And Jesus wanted his audience to hear that by telling the story, and they knew the story behind the story. We need to remember that too. Because these stories both tell us who God is, what matters to God, that God cares about people. By the way, I always thought about this and those, those children, 120,000 that he spared it for. The Bible tells us that when Jesus has the children come sit on his lap, he says, for such as this are the kingdom of heaven. There's a purity in children that's pretty remarkable. I got to see that just two weeks ago, 14 days ago. We were having youth group downstairs. I was down with our second through fifth graders in the downstairs youth group with Courtney and Danny and Zach, and Danny was leading our lesson, I think, and it was on respect. It wasn't on evangelism, it was on respect. And when we got done with the lesson, he says, does anyone want to pray? Well, there's this little girl down there, and I barely know her and her family, they're kind of new to our church, and she says, well, I'll pray. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of neat, I'm interested to hear what this little girl prays, I'm curious what her prayer will be like. And all of a sudden, immediately, she starts praying, I'm like, wow. This little girl's a prayer warrior. This is a young evangelist. Because this little girl's prayer goes like this. She says, oh, Lord, I'm so thankful that you let us be here tonight. And we're, we love this so much. But, but God, there are all these empty chairs. Would you send so many kids to our youth group that every chair is full and that there has to be kids that sit on the floor, that we all have to sit on the floor because there's not enough chairs for all of us to be here. Now, nobody had said anything about that. And that's this little girl's prayer. I'm telling you, God loves the hearts of pure children that see things so different than we do. And here's the incredible thing. Last Sunday morning, she brought kids with her to church. She brought a whole passel full of them to church, to youth group last week. And it was the biggest youth group of the year. I'm like, dang, I need her to pray all the time. This girl, she's got it going on. We need to let her pray more. She knows what she's doing. Yeah. God sees the hearts of children. He sees purity. He cares about them. For us, we're all God's children. He cares about all of us. Even if I I can claim I know my right and left, and you probably can too, but there's a lot of times you wouldn't know that by the way I carry on or things I do that are just foolishness. No, but God cares for me, and he cares for you, Like he cared for them. Like Jesus cared for that man who was blind and couldn't speak. He didn't want to leave him where he was. He wanted to bring him to a better place. But there are always those people on the outside. They just can't fathom what God's doing. Sadly, sometimes there are those of us on the inside like Jonah. We know who God is, but we can't always fathom what he wants to do. Surely he wouldn't reach out to them. Surely he wouldn't want to save that person. God's will is that not one would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance, and know him as their Savior. If you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I encourage you to do it today as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.